Here's the tease. There's a certain sad irony in the realization that we live in a culture seemingly obsessed with zombie movies and zombie TV series while the world is filled with people who are themselves a type of walking dead. Congratulations, through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this digital bouillabaisse hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant, a better covenant based on better promises. So, check your religion at the door. Grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the new and better podcast. Well, I'm back because there's a guy out there paying people $10 to speak words of wisdom into this here can. And as I hold forth here on Good Friday, two days away from Resurrection Sunday, we're being extra mindful of what Jesus accomplished by laying down on that cross. Last week and this, we're exploring the stunning implications of that event. In reality, every episode of the New and Better podcast past and future, is and will be an exploration of that event and its implications. Because the events of Good Friday sealed and certified the new and better covenant based on better promises from which this humble presentation takes its name. In the previous installment, we learned that the cross was the loneliest intersection in world history. Today, we're going to discover that that same cross is a place of exchange. Your understanding and gratitude for what Jesus did for you is about to rise significantly. So stay with me right after page two. Hey, let me quickly remind you about my brand new devotional just released last week called Praying Grace for Women. Here's why I wrote it. Far too many Christian women, beloved daughters of God, are spread too thin, exhausted, stressed out, burned out, living with chronic anxiety. And for many, prayer has become a fruitless, frustrating, joyless exercise. Yet another box to check, another duty to perform. Well, here's extraordinary news for the weary feminine soul. There's another way to pray, a more effective way that produces a refreshing, life-giving connection with God's love grace and power. Praying Grace for Women is a 55-day journey of discovery and hope created to lead you to a deep revelation of God's goodness and faithfulness to you. Help your heart absorb the full implications of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Ground your identity in who God says you are and lead you into a lifestyle of rest while teaching you a form of praying that proclaims rather than pleads making you a partner with God. Get ready to discover grace for rest, grace for intimacy with God, grace for peace, and grace for breakthrough, as well as the keys to praying from strength rather than struggling for strength. Okay, now, back to the life-transforming content I'm serving up here free of charge today. Have you ever been to a swap meet? It's a place where people trade things they don't want for things they do want. 
It's a place of exchange. Well, the cross is a place of exchange as well. Yet most Christians have been taught to understand it only as a place where they come to get their ticket to heaven. But it's so much more than that. For us, the cross isn't just a place which we're reconciled with the Heavenly Father who loves us, pursued us, and chose us. Although it is that, the cross is also a place of exchange. We come to the cross carrying every cursed and awful thing that befell mankind in the fall. There, we lay those things down and walk away with our arms laden with extraordinary gifts. Yes, this seems too good to be true, but then the word gospel literally means wonderful news, doesn't it? The fact is, we make seven key exchanges at the foot of the cross. And the more we understand, embrace, and believe these seven exchanges, the more expectant and faith-filled and therefore more powerful our prayers become and the more fruitful our lives become. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to run these seven trades down for you. And here's the first. At the cross, we exchange our sinfulness for Jesus' righteousness. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the NIV. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As this verse states, Jesus, who was sinless, became sin itself, so that we might actually become the very righteousness of God. What an astonishing declaration, yet it's absolutely true. It's not just that Jesus' perfection is imputed to us through some divine accounting trick. It's literally imparted to us through the miracle of the new birth. The prophet Isaiah glimpsed the future Messiah's crucifixion and cried, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's Isaiah 53, 6. The apostle John, who'd stood there beside the Savior's mother on that terrible Good Friday, described it this way, This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. 1 John 4.10 could anything other than real love offer a trade this lopsided? Jesus takes not only the guilt for our individual acts of sin, but our very sinfulness. In return, he assigns to us his own personal righteousness. With it, we gain the amazing privilege of communion and connectedness to God that our forefather Adam once enjoyed, but lost. Jesus was made to be sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. This is the first exchange available at the cross, and it is a wondrous, game-changing trade, if only we'll believe it. Now, the second exchange we make at the cross is to exchange our cursedness for his blessings. From the very beginning, God's plan was for his people to live in blessing. That extraordinary garden into which he settled them was a place of abundance, joy, peace, and beauty. It's no accident that the first words we hear God speaking over the very first people are words of blessing. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful 
That's Genesis 1.28. Of course, we know that when Adam and Eve rebelled, they let loose a horrific curse upon the earth in place of that blessing. Disease, lack, oppression, misery, strife, and pain suddenly reigned. Even the ground became cursed, refusing to yield provision gladly. For every one of the first couple's descendants, pain, hardship, and grief became the hard reality of life. Yes, the first Adam released a curse upon the world, and yes, the earth still groans under the weight of that curse and will continue to do so until a new heaven and earth come along. But at the cross, the last Adam, Jesus, turned blessing loose in its place for those willing to humbly receive his offer. Paul had this truth in mind when he told the Christians in Rome, So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21 This is the message of this verse as well. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, there's that word blessing, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. At the cross, we get to exchange life under Adam's curse for Abraham's life of blessing. This is the second of the seven amazing exchanges we make when we accept God's gracious offer of salvation. Now with the third exchange, we bring our rejectedness and walk away with his acceptance. We all know that Jesus suffered for our sins, literally having our sins laid upon him as he was crucified. And some of us are aware that Jesus bore our sicknesses and infirmities that we might know health and healing. But have you ever considered the fact that Jesus suffered the ultimate in rejection by God that you might experience the acceptance he knew as the Son of God? Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. You'll recall that one of Christ's seven statements from the cross was to quote Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cited this because at that moment he was experiencing the divine rejection we deserve. No human being has ever experienced such total rejection as Jesus experienced on the cross. Think about this. Jesus suffered your rejection so you might have his acceptance. You can purpose today to never again insult the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice by approaching God on the basis of your own worthiness or lack thereof. Yes, you may still fall back into the trap of disqualifying yourself from time to time, but you can learn to fight for your heart confidence, to feed it and strengthen it with God's word, to attack undermining disqualifying thoughts with scriptural truth. So fly to him, child of God. Run as fast as your feet can carry you. Know that you are accepted, loved, and unspeakably welcome. Then, with grateful mindfulness of all he has done for you, 
in the past and will do for you in the future. Pour out to him your requests. You are accepted. Now, here's the fourth exchange offered to us at the cross. We exchange our sickness for his health. Now, that brings us back to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah again, containing the prophet's prophetic vision of Jesus' suffering and death by crucifixion roughly 800 years in advance of the event. In Isaiah 53, 5, we read, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, what? We are healed. The first thing you need to know is that the Hebrew word translated peace in that verse is the familiar word shalom, a word that means far more than the mere absence of conflict. Shalom means wholeness, soundness, perfect well-being, nothing missing, nothing broken. The chastisement of our shalom well-being was upon him. It's also significant to note that this whole passage is filled with the language of exchange and substitution. The Messiah receives wounds for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. Our peace is purchased by his chastisement. His stripes, the marks of the brutal Roman scourging that preceded the crucifixion, brought about our healing. We know that sickness and disease are not God's will for his people because there was no illness in the garden when he placed the first man and woman there. Pain and infirmity were not part of the lovely creation that God declared good. Sickness was and is a result of the fall and its ensuing curse. And among believers who have understood that healing is an integral element in Jesus' atoning work, miraculous restorations are really not unusual. Countless hurting children of God have walked boldly into the court of heaven and received the provision Jesus purchased for them with his own body and blood. At the cross, you can exchange your brokenness, spiritual, physical, and emotional, for Jesus' wholeness. All right, here's the fifth exchange, our shame for his glory. In the Old Testament, we find two Hebrew words translated into our English word shame. They're related, but they describe two different sides of the human experience of shame. Now, the word bosheth describes the guilt and embarrassment we feel when our sin comes to light. It's bosheth that caused Adam and Eve to hide from the presence of God and so fig leaf garments. Every person with a functioning conscience has felt this kind of shame. Now, the other Old Testament word for shame is kalam, and it speaks of being hurt, rejected, disgraced, defiled, or humiliated, usually in public and particularly by someone close to you. The first type of shame is that sense of uncleanness we feel when we sin, resulting in damage to ourselves and to others. Its close companion is our English word guilt. But the second shame is that humiliating sense of defilement and worthlessness we feel when we are betrayed or used or abused by others. In other words, we feel the first shame when we hurt someone else, and we feel the second shame when someone hurts us. The very history of the human race since the fall is little more than 
these two forms of shame simultaneously ravaging the souls of mankind generation after generation, abusing and being abused, defiling and being defiled, hurt people hurting people. Jesus carried every bit of this with him to the cross. When Jesus looked ahead to the cross, he didn't see pain. He saw unspeakable shame, our shame, our bosheth and kalam being heaped upon himself in almost infinite measure. Check out Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, what? Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, what shame Jesus bore on the day of his great sacrifice. One of the great wonders of the cross is that Jesus did more than bear our sin. He bore the first great consequence of sin, our shame. No matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, we are invited to come to the cross and leave our shame there. Why would we continue to carry a single particle of it then? Okay, we have two more exchanges to cover here, and believe me, they're really, really good. But first, page three. Hey, Mother's Day is fast approaching, so run, don't walk, to order my newest book, Praying Grace for Women, for all the moms in your life. And to grab a copy of the original devotional, Praying Grace, while you're at it. Okay, here's your sixth exchange, and it comes with a trigger warning. We come to the cross and exchange our abject poverty for his infinite abundance. Now, don't tune me out. Just look with fresh eyes at the words of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though that he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So argue with that, not with me. This verse explicitly states that Jesus became poor in order to affect yet another aspect of the great exchange at the cross. Over the years, many have debated the question, in what sense did Jesus become poor? Well, it's clear to me that he did so in two senses. First, he became radically poorer the moment he stepped out of eternity and stepped into this fallen, broken, time-bound world. God the Son, the Word, laid aside the glory and splendor of heaven and moved into the frail, fragile body of an infant lying in a hay trough in a Middle Eastern backwater village. <laughs> it stands as the most stunning drop in status and privilege imaginable. Paul clearly had this reality in mind when he wrote Philippians 2, 5, and 6, and 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Secondly, whatever possessions Jesus accumulated in his life were taken from him on that day he was crucified. On trial before Pilate, he had nothing left but the robe on his back, a little physical strength and his dignity. And soon, all of these would be stripped away too. 
The Prince of Heaven would soon hang naked and despised before a gawking world as Roman soldiers rolled dice for his garment. Never has a man been so utterly destitute as was Jesus on that cross in those dark hours. He was poor in every way a person can be. No possessions, no comfort, no defenders, and no friends. But why? So that beggars like us could become children of the King. We come to the cross to make a wonderful, absurd, unreasonable, too-good-to-be-true exchange. We bring our utter, comprehensive bankruptcy and leave it there. And we walk away rich, rich in love, rich in hope, in peace, in power, and yes, in abundant material provision for our every need. Now, if all that weren't enough, I've saved the best for last. The seventh exchange we make at the cross is trading our death for his life. There's a certain sad irony in the realization that we live in a culture seemingly obsessed with zombie movies and zombie TV series, while the world is filled with people who are themselves a type of walking dead. In his initial warning to Adam and Eve, God said, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. As we know, they ate anyway, yet they did not fall over dead the instant they disobeyed that command. Nevertheless, they did die that day in a multitude of ways. In that moment, physical death became a part of their futures and also for their billions of offspring yet unborn. It seems strange, but in a very real sense, every one of us was born both dying and already dead. This changes when we come to the cross and make the greatest exchange of all, his life for our death. Paul had this exchange in mind when he wrote to the Colossians, Colossians 2.13, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Romans 5:12 and 17. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It's a tragedy of unspeakable proportions when anyone dies without having made that exchange. It is a tragedy God sent Jesus to prevent. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave, that whoever should not perish but have everlasting life. At the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to exchange our deaths in every form for his life in every form. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus told us, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. At the cross, you traded your life of walking death for one in which you are fully alive in every way. 
So there you have it. Seven exchanges you can make at the cross, if you will. Like every other aspect of the Christian life, it requires simple, humble belief. But you can't believe what you've never been told. But now you know. Now it's time for takeaways. Seven exchanges made possible by one magnificent Savior and a God who so loved the world that he gave. As we stand in awestruck wonder at the love of God displayed on the cross, let's be diligent to make sure we've made every one of those exchanges. Let's not let a drop of that precious blood or a single measure of that costly suffering go to waste. Have a blessed Resurrection Sunday, and I'll see you next time right here on the New and Better Podcast.